0: Welcome back to The Bid and to our mini-series, Sustainability, Our New Standard, where we explore the ways that sustainability across climate change, COVID, and other factors is transforming investing. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. Back in July, I spoke with Sandy Boss, BlackRock's Global Head of Investment Stewardship. At that time, Sandy talked about why she believes companies with a clear sense of purpose are better able to deliver, especially in times of uncertainty. Today, we'll learn how companies stayed resilient through this year's crisis, with both purpose and communities front of mind. Sandy, thanks for joining us again on The Bid. Oh, it's very nice to be here, MC. Great to talk to you. So we first spoke in July about investment stewardship, and you were a couple months into this role. Can you give us a quick refresh on just what investment stewardship does and how it's a little bit different this year?
1: Investment stewardship in a very simple way. It's a lot like what any investor would do if they're investing in a stock. So they care about how the company is performing. They read the reports from the company. They might go to a shareholder meeting to hear what the management has to say. And they have the right then to vote on the company on the items that are on the proxy ballot. What we do is similar, but on a larger scale. So we engage with companies. We will actually have in our case, 2,000 companies that we met with last year. We have a stewardship team globally of about 50 people. So this enables us to really get close to companies, speak to them in local language to help understand what they're doing to manage the companies well, but also to share with them what we expect. Another thing that we do is we actually will talk to the organizations around the world that are setting standards for companies. That might be regulators, that might be the people who own stewardship codes or governance codes in different countries. But we'll work with them on what's the right way for we and other investors to set expectations for companies. What are the definitions of good governance? What's definitions of how you should have sustainable business practices? The third thing that we do is voting proxies. So we will take voting decisions using our voting guidelines and use that vote to hold management to account, voting in support when we feel that they're doing the things that we want them to do, but sometimes voting against management, either voting against directors or voting in favor of shareholder proposals. It's helpful to say, I think that all of this is done for a reason. It's our role in stewardship to be looking after our clients' interests in these companies that were invested on their behalf. And that's kind of a big mouthful, but it really means if you think about it from the perspective of the clients, they have their long-term financial goals and they're looking to us to make sure that the companies that we invest in for them are performing as well as possible and that they are generating long-term value. So this year was a year where it's hard
0: to think long-term about anything, personalized, professional lives, what might make a company's business grow or shrink. And so I'm curious then how did you think about what were the most important issues to be raising with that long-term orientation as you're meeting with management teams?
1: That's a great question. Well, so it's interesting because obviously we started this year with Larry's letter. We were very, very focused, particularly on climate risk and our worry that climate risk was becoming a significant investment risk. We were expecting this tectonic shift in capital and The interesting thing about this year is, while we got very surprised by the pandemic, I would say that the fundamental view that we have around both climate risk and other sustainability risks has really been strengthened by the experiences that we've had this year. On the first days of the pandemic, everybody's time horizon shrunk in, and we met with hundreds and hundreds of companies to talk to them about resilience. So they needed to make sure that they were operationally resilient, that they could buy and sell goods, that they could keep their workers safe, that they could operate remotely. That was incredibly important. Then financial resilience, did they have enough cash? And there was also a strategic resilience question. So many companies had strategic issues that might have taken five or 10 years play out, hit them in like five months. But the interesting thing then was very quickly, big companies did think about what does this pandemic mean more broadly? And the first thing they talked about was how the pandemic was really forcing them to face into their social and economic contract with the stakeholders that they were dealing with. There are employees at risk, suppliers at risk, communities at risk. The entire ecosystem that any company was operating within had been, in some cases, completely devastated, in other cases, severely disrupted. And companies increasingly recognize that if they are not thinking about their stakeholders, if they haven't led themselves in a purposeful way and managed themselves in a manner that's consistent with what their stakeholders need, they can really lose their social license to operate. And we saw company after company that might not have thought that way before the crisis actually awakening to the fact that a profit-only or shareholder-only approach wasn't actually going to enable them to survive and thrive through this crisis. We also saw companies who had always really, really been centered around their stakeholders actually emerge in a very successful way. But the final thing I would say is that 2020 has been an unbelievable year of acceleration around the recognition that climate risk is an incredibly important issue for companies. Obviously, the regulatory backdrop has changed. We've started to see more and more countries making net zero commitments, and that makes the need to manage transition risk incredibly compelling for any company. But on a voluntary basis, we've also just seen companies observing the regulatory trends, observing the physical climate trends that we're seeing, listening to their investors. We've also seen other industries where the companies are really doubling down, investing in new technologies, thinking ahead, working with their suppliers and regulators and other companies in their sector to try to think about how to address some of the really difficult issues. What do you think we learned
0: about what indicators there are for that kind of resilience that you just spoke about? What kind of indicators there are for stronger relationships with stakeholders? How much do you think now we could try to emphasize
1: in conversations with companies to anticipate how they'll fare in future crises? From a climate risk perspective, what we have observed in terms of what makes a good approach is a company that has really embedded the consideration of climate risk into everything that they do. So they don't think of this as a hobby, but they think of it as being integral to how they will survive and thrive as a business. And I'd say something similar on the social side, probably the single greatest indicator, and it's not something every company can do, but what's the time frame over which you are setting goals for sustainable social practices, and how long have you been doing it? So the leading companies that I'm interacting with as part of this stewardship journey, they talk about their third decade-long program to do something transformational in the world of sustainability. And I do think that that significance of sustainability being fundamental over time to a company is really, really important. When it then comes to a more kind of tactical level question about metrics, I think we and other investors increasingly find that the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board's metrics, so SASB metrics, they are really valuable for us because they're specific to the industry. So for an individual industry, you're not looking at hundreds and hundreds of metrics. It's A limited number might be 10 specific metrics that are relevant, that can be tracked over time, that can be compared, and that are founded on a methodology that is practical and reviewed by standard setters who know what they're doing. So I think that combination of the big picture vision and then these really practical metrics, that's what gives us really what we need. It's not just about living it. We've also need to see it in the metrics and the numbers.
0: Another important theme that you and your team talk about often with companies, is purpose. And that's something that BlackRock's emphasized, the importance of a company having a clear purpose to drive their strategy over a medium to long-term period. How has that taken shape more specifically? What do you think we've learned this year about what we mean when we talk about purpose?
1: I think certainly what we've learned is that the conviction has proven to be quite real. But I think perhaps the most important thing for all of us who are operating in the corporate space is to go beyond the high level into what does that mean in practice? So make it real. You know, I think the first, and it's been incredibly important this year, is fair treatment of employees. If you look two, three years ago, sometimes when people talked about their proposition to their employees, it sounded very growth-oriented and war for talent. But I think going through a situation as difficult as the one that we're in right now, this is much more about basic things like health and safety of workers. We've always thought about those things in manufacturing businesses and physical industries, but health and safety of workers has mattered in every single business this year. It's also the proposition to the employees in terms of what is the security of their work? Is the work meaningful? Do they feel that the company that they're working for actually cares for them and indicates it by what they're doing Should a company with purpose just not lay anyone off? How do you handle that situation? There are companies that have faced existential crises that have needed to reduce their workforce, but that have done it in a way that was much more humane than they might have done if they had been only thinking about the bottom line to their companies. And that includes things like helping employees with retraining, what's the nature of the severance packages, looking for other opportunities within a broader company. So there are mechanisms for even making very, very difficult decisions in a manner that is as close to a purposeful intent. The second thing that I think is important is we are much more conscious in certain markets in particular that racial inequity has become an unsustainable problem facing businesses. I think most large companies would say they haven't done enough yet. Most large companies would say, I acknowledge that my workforce doesn't yet look like the population around me and that I need to do more. But so what we're really looking for is at the board level that companies are starting to make sure that diversity reflects All aspects of diversity. We're also looking into how companies are managing their workforces and what are they actually doing to make sure that situations of inequity are getting redressed. The third thing I'll mention is fair treatment of workers throughout the supply chain. So one of the big changes that we observed in the COVID-related readjustments was when companies started to build back better and big companies started to look at their full supply chains to think about resilience They also asked a new question that not all of them had been asking in the past around, are the workers in my supply chain being treated fairly? And the final point I'll just make is treatment of local communities. So I think there is a real need for companies more and more to think about their footprint to think about how they engage with the community. Is that community thriving? What's their role in local education? What's their role in local social services and charitable activities? I think employees really are demanding that. And I think increasingly companies are recognizing that. So you talked
0: about the importance of having a local presence for companies to be living their purpose. I'm curious what differences you see across different countries, different jurisdictions in terms of how companies are responding to what are otherwise very global themes of sustainability, stakeholder engagement, supply chain management. What have you noticed over the course of the past year about how regional differences or cultural differences drive differences in companies' priorities?
1: It's an interesting question. Starting where I sit in Europe, I live in London, and I would say that European companies have in their statutes, in their local codes, expectations around stakeholder engagement. Often there are, in some countries, expectation of worker representation on boards. Where that doesn't exist, there is nonetheless a pretty high expectation that broad stakeholder engagement is part of the corporate ethos. Similarly, in Europe, what you'll also see is that the local environment around climate change commitments and that being brought from an EU level into country level and the UK having its own country level client commitments, that creates a dynamic where it's really just the expectation for companies that they should be considering their stakeholders and that they should be considering what their path to adjust Transition to a low carbon economy looks like. Now, it doesn't mean that European companies have all of the answers, but what it does mean is that society, companies, employees, the regulatory environment, investors as well, are all very much pulling in the same direction. If we then go to the US, what's been quite interesting is that obviously the regulatory environment and similarly corporate governance doesn't really make expectations of companies either around their stakeholder management or around their duties to be managing climate change. So each company, of course, needs to look at its risks, they need to assess them, but it's a very different environment. That said, there has been a tremendous amount of development in the U.S., and I think it's in part. Because companies are engaging with their investors and their customers and they're seeing the financial value of taking a stakeholder-oriented approach and of managing a transition to a low-carbon economy. In the U.S., as in other countries, the regulatory environment is likely to go only one way, which is toward having, over time, greater expectation put on companies, whether it be carbon taxes or whether it be other requirements that they would be migrating toward a lower carbon operating model. Asia is a really interesting market. On the climate and sustainability perspective, there are certain countries that have actually really pulled ahead. Interestingly, 20 percent of the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures come out of Japan globally right now. There are a lot of stock exchanges that require sustainability reporting. Many of the companies have been using GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, to express their sustainability risk. That said, if you go into the full range of carbon-intensive companies throughout developing Asia, there are many companies where this dialogue is just beginning. It's not easy in certain countries when you need to invest in technology that doesn't yet exist In some countries where, unlike Japan, China, and Korea, which have made net zero commitments, there may not yet be a country-level commitment. So it sounds like a tremendous amount
0: of regulatory progress and government, public sector-led progress. What are you finding effective as a private sector actor? What are we doing to hold companies accountable?
1: BlackRock is a very long-term shareholder on behalf of clients. So 90% of our listed equities is in index. And what that means is we will hold a company in the portfolio as long as it's in the index. might be 20 times longer than an active manager might hold a company in the portfolio. We really value engaging with companies, understanding their challenges, and sharing our expectations, making sure, though, that those expectations are reasonable So if we think about governance, we took 5,100 votes this year against directors. We want the board to be independent, diverse, have enough capacity to do their work well, have appropriate decisions about executive compensation being aligned with long-term value. And we want that because that's the company that then will be creating value on behalf of our clients. So that part of what we do, which has really always been the anchor, that remains unchanged. If we then look toward what's been different this year, it has been the increasing urgency of sustainability risk as a risk facing companies, and particular climate risk, but also some of these social risks that I talked about earlier. We have intensified the way that we're engaging with companies on climate risk, the way that we're engaging with them on social risk. So. At this point in the year, we actually voted against management at 63 companies on climate-related reasons. And how are you finding that those actions this year are having an effect? We've done some research where we've seen not only that our votes against directors are, in fact, very effective tools. 80% of the time, if we vote against a remuneration chair in the FTSE 350 over a compensation issue, the problem is fixed the next year. 40% 40% of the time if we vote against a company in the Russell 3000 on diversity the diversity is improved by the next year. Wow. So we know that that classic tool of voting against directors is one that is effective for us, but we've also done research into shareholder proposals just to understand how these increasingly well-supported environmental proposals and also some social proposals are being effective. We've started to use them more since July 1st. We're making clear that if we do see a proposal from shareholders that we think we agree with the intent, we think the matter is urgent, we think that there's something material that the company has not yet addressed and that it could do differently, then we're increasingly supporting shareholder proposals. We won't be supporting all of them. We don't think that's the right answer. We think it's incredibly important to engage with companies engage with the specifics of the shareholder proposals, make sure that it's consistent with our expectations, that it's fair. But certainly in our voting record since July 1st on environmental shareholder proposals, we're using them more than we have in the past. And I think that trend will continue in 2021. The impact of those
0: votes is huge. And I work here and I didn't even realize that. I'm curious then, how are we communicating that kind of impact what's the audience that cares? Who are you finding wants to understand what your team is doing and how are you engaging with them to help them comprehend what's happening and why it matters?
1: Our primary audience is our clients. So we do what we do on their behalf. And we think that all of our tools, whether it's focusing on getting the right standards in the market, working with others in the industry, to engaging with companies, to voting in the different ways that I've talked about. We're also producing more reports than we've done in the past. So we try to pull together reports that tell a story that are a bit more accessible than some of the things that we may have done over the years. We're also using vote bulletins where we go out on a specific vote and describe this is the company, this is the situation, this is the vote that was taken, this is why we took it. And we find that transparency is also helpful it's helpful for clients to understand our decisions. It's also helpful for companies because what we're increasingly trying to communicate is if, for example, we vote against management on an issue, that doesn't mean that we don't support management. If we're invested in a company for decades, by definition, we are a supportive shareholder and we want to see the management succeed. It does mean, however, that on that issue, we didn't agree with management, or we felt that they could do more than they had done. I want to make sure as much as possible that when people do read stories about the firm and what it's doing in stewardship, that they're hearing the kind of balanced approach that I'm describing and that they can get the full picture of what we do from having 50 people out meeting with companies helping them meet our expectations on these E, S, and G issues that we and other investors think are important. I'd like people to really hear that story. And I don't know if they always get it if they pick up the newspaper on any odd day. So the more that we can communicate, I think the better. Well, thank you, Sandy. Thanks so much for joining us. MC, it was great to speak with you. Always happy to join the bid. Hope we get to do it again.
2: This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the US and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the UK, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. Authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Registered Office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL. Telephone plus 44 020. 77433000 registered in England and Wales number 2020394 For your protection telephone calls are usually recorded BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited In Singapore this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited co-registration number 200010143N In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management, North Asia Limited, and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management, Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523-BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.